0: Hi listeners, welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janita DeCristofaro and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Dougie. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janita Cristofaro, and thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is meant to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While loss is something we will all experience throughout our lives, when it occurs, most of us are left not knowing what to do, how to feel, or how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we hope these podcast conversations lead to a better understanding of grief and also give you some ideas and inspiration for how to show up for yourself and those you care about. Today on the podcast, we're talking about what it's like when the term widow or widower doesn't fit because you weren't officially married to the person who died. This is often the case for many young adults who lose their partners. They find themselves grieving their person, the one they were building a life with, and also dealing with the ramifications of not being family in the eyes of the law. And some people find themselves left out of the most important and difficult decisions. Joining us today to talk about this is Lindsay. Thanks so much for being here, Lindsay. Thank you. In 2009, Lindsay's partner, Jared, was hit by a drunk driver who fled the scene. Jared was on life support for about a month, and he eventually died. Lindsay, when you tell people about Jared and his death, What do you usually say? How do you describe things?
1: When I talk about Jared, I explain him as just this person who is so filled with life and just such an adventurous spirit and and, and taught me so much about what it was to just really live and and be in the moment. He was an incredible partner, an incredible son and brother and friend. When I talk about how he died, it's hard to, but I, I think it's important to because I don't think that people talk enough about it. And when I first lost him, I found myself having no one to talk to. So I tend to explain my process and what happened in a lot greater detail than some might even want (laughs) to hear. He was hit by a drunk driver on the way home from a show that our bands played together, and he never made it back. The driver fled the scene. It resulted in me getting a call at about four in the morning from his mother, her letting me know that he had been in an accident and there was, it was bad. But I didn't know anything else and I just knew I had to get there. I think when I got to the hospital, it was the first time I really, realized or had to face the fact that I wasn't a family member or I I wasn't legally necessarily supposed to be there in the ICU. So I was there first and, and I'm very, very, very lucky because Jared's mother had expressed to the hospital staff that I was important that I was family and that I I should be treated like that. So they were really nice and sweet and accommodating to me and letting me see him, but they certainly didn't have to be. And and I really, it didn't even hit me that that could be a possibility until I got there.
0: And was there something someone said that brought that to mind or did it just... It was the nurse saying like, hey,
1: don't worry about this thing that you weren't previously (laughs) worrying about. And I was in total shock in the moment, too. So I was, of course, just thinking, like, get me to him. Not that there would ever be a blocker, but there very well could have been. And how long were you there with Jared before his family was able to arrive? I wasn't actually allowed to go in because I believe if I remember incorrectly. And it's crazy that I'm maybe not because it's so, it was so traumatic and blurry. Um, But he was in surgery when I got there. So I was probably there for a few hours before I actually got to get in the room and see what shape he was in. What do you remember about those hours of waiting to see him, waiting to hear? I was definitely in panic and a shock. I remember getting really preoccupied with making sure that like we had a snack for Jared's mom when she arrived. Um, I I remember being nervous that my best friend who had driven me there, stayed with me until Jared's mom got there. I remember being nervous if
0: it was okay for him to be there with me and for me to have that support. And it's kind of amazing what we get focused on yeah when there's something so incomprehensible happening right. like here's this little thing mm-hmm. that I can make sure it gets done and gets done well yeah and that was really
1: like my whole deal throughout the month that he was in the hospital. It was just all about what could I do to make sure everything was running smoothly? Even though it was a very serious accident, it was a traumatic brain injury and he had all of these other issues. He went into cardiac arrest at one point. His kidney started to fail. I never really thought he was gonna die. That part I couldn't quite comprehend. And so I really wanted to make sure that when he woke up, was taken care of. I kept all these lists and here are the people who came to visit and I made sure that when people were in the room we talked about him in a certain way and it, like I had a role and I had a purpose in that and when he was gone and, and my purpose was suddenly gone that was it just made it extra hard to know what to do. Because you've um, been so focused on these particular
0: things. Yeah. Uh, waiting for him to yeah. to wake up.
1: Even Even though I had no way of impacting whether he was going to live or not, it felt like it was some way for me to take care of him. And that was really important to me. So he was on life support for a month? Yes. And then was there a decision made to take him off life support? Yeah. So, and this is one of the areas where, you know, marriage becomes important or having some sort of legal document. Because I'm so lucky his family treated me like family and we talked about it. And they really let me be involved in that conversation. But ultimately it was their decision. And ultimately, I, I would have made a different decision, which is not to say my decision would be right and theirs was wrong. I just know what I wanted in that moment was more time. I completely understand where they were coming from, too, especially with a brain injury involved. There's a very little chance of someone coming back and an even smaller chance of them coming back as the person they were, but I just wanted him there. I would have made him stick around with me for a little while longer. It's something that I talk to, uh, especially at my age, and I'm I'm in my mid-30s now. I was in my late 20s when Jared died, but for my friends who are in, you know, partnerships and they don't feel like they need to get married, and it's not the same traditional society that we had, you know, several decades ago, but I encourage them to think about that. Not necessarily that you have to get married, but to have that conversation, to set it up, to talk to the family and and try to make it a legal thing. You know, you can even know somebody's wishes. I knew what Jared's wishes were, but emotions get involved and it becomes about you in addition to about them and what they want. I really lucked out in, you know, his family and also in the fact that he was so expressive uh, about how much he cared about our relationship and the future he saw for us. And we were planning on getting married, planning on spending our lives together. We just thought we had the luxury of time. And so I'm very lucky that he was as open with everyone in his life about our our relationship and, and that I got to meet them and develop
0: relationships with them in advance of this. Otherwise, it could have been really different. Yeah, I mean, I think about people who are together maybe for many years and... People talk to their families about one another, but maybe their family lives really far away. Mm-hmm. And they've only met one time. Right. And to suddenly be drawn together in such a tragic and such an intense way to yeah. have to make really important decisions together with people you might not, you might barely know.
1: Yeah, and you know, my family lives on the East Coast. Jared didn't get the opportunity to meet my family. He, you know, I talked about him, They knew about him, but they didn't get exposure to our relationship like his friends and family did. So there was never any part of me that felt like I needed to justify or explain how important or serious our relationship was to the people in his life. But I, I just think about what had happened what would happen if the roles were reversed, what he
0: would have been up mm-hmm. against
1: in my world just because they didn't have that advantage of that
0: exposure. You mentioned justifying, you know, your role or yeah. legitimizing your relationship and how has that played out over the last seven years of you know, you meet people, you tell them about this life-changing event for you. Do you describe Jared as your partner, your boyfriend, your fiance even though you weren't mm-hmm. officially fiancés. Yeah,
1: I say partner, which is interesting because it's definitely more of like a west coast term than a east <laughs> coast term. The fiance thing is tough because, you know, he was someone that I did plan on spending my life with. It, we talked about it. We talked about getting married. We talked about what kind of house we were going to buy. We talked about the type of life we were going to lead together. He was the great love of my life. That was my person. But there was no proposal, you know? I didn't call myself his fiancé when he was alive. It's interesting, though, because saying boyfriend doesn't feel like it does it justice. Saying fiancé is not true, but closer, and so I land on partner. But even with his obituary, I think I'm I'm listed as fiancé, and I think his parents felt
0: that made it more clear what my role was. It's amazing how much weight these terms have. Both, well, you know, when someone's alive, but after someone dies and trying to explain our connection mm-hmm. to the people. You know, if we say our husband, our wife, our child, it, people kind of have a, a schema that they know what that means. Right. But if we say close friend mm-hmm. or colleague, there's so much depth to those relationships, or there can be that yeah. doesn't get conveyed.
1: Yeah, it's so true. I am very, very, very close with Jared's two best friends. In particular now, even after all these years, we're just kind of bonded for life. And I was talking to one of them the other day, and he just says, Jared is my brother because they grew up their whole lives mm-hmm. together. He really was, he did really fill that role for him, even though it wasn't official. And so we kind of, I, and I had never thought about anyone else in his life having that challenge of labeling. And so we were really able to connect on that. And it's funny, I was like, I would never question you saying that, like that makes total sense to me. And he was like, well, fiance makes total sense to me, Mm -hmm. but I don't feel comfortable. I mean, I think Jared and I had such an amazing, special relationship that I wouldn't want to do anything other than honor exactly what it was. The more time that has gone by and the more conversations you have with people who aren't in that circle or don't know it, it's like, how do you introduce that to a new relationship? After Jared died, I moved to Seattle to be with his friends and family. I didn't want to be around anyone I had to explain myself to. And when I decided to leave after a couple of years back to Portland, I was sort of faced with that, like, what do I tell people? It took me a while to tell people anything. And I'm not good at hiding stuff. (laughs) I'm long-winded, and Mm -hmm. so I kind of end up telling my whole story. But for me, it's just, that's who I am. That is such a part of who I am. And my identity is the love and the loss of this person, in part. No one really knows me unless they know that. So um, when relationships got to a certain point in Portland, it felt important to say Um, to be honest about who I am. You know, now that time has passed, I talk about it very openly. So much so that we got you on the podcast (laughs) to talk to
0: the greater audience about it. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So Portland was where you and Jared were together and Mm -hmm. had your relationship what what was it like to come back to the place where so much of your relationship lived basically and so many memories and places
1: yeah it's interesting I ended up moving into a house that was really close to the accident site and so I would drive by it every day at least once that was actually like a really nice thing for me, to have this like kind of quiet moment where I would think about him or talk to him or honor him in some way. And it was a really nice way to feel reconnected to him eventually. Because the, everywhere, in Seattle and Portland, um, our relationship really took place in both cities and there was landmines everywhere and with everyone. Driving by the hospital where he died, it was really hard. A life without him is just full of triggers. The location definitely brings them up. But I'd be thinking about them every day anyway, so.
0: Do you have a sense of if people would have responded to you differently if you had been older or had been married for many years?
1: Yeah, it's funny. Part part of me being so open uh, about what happened, I think, is also a way of getting people to understand how serious it is to me. As far as, like, somebody questioning it, very rarely have I felt like I've actually come up against that. I think it's more of an internal thing for me it's Mm. it's me and it's me being nervous about how people are going to react I had this very skewed vision of what grief was going to be like and when he died and I finally started to understand that he was gone I remember having a conversation with myself and saying like okay well you know, you've gone through this really terrible thing. It, this is excruciating. It's devastating. And so I'm going to give myself about a year to get through this. <laughs> and, and I thought I was being really generous, too. <laughs> but I remember being, like, three months in. And, like, three months, I was still just utter disaster. Like, totally not okay. To not, you know, like, not working. Like, quit my job. Stopped working. Moved up to Seattle. It was basically being taken care of. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to make my
0: deadline. (laughs) We need to recalculate.
1: Yeah, but I mean, there's still uh, seven years of grieving, you know, in some form or another. That's hard for people to understand who haven't been through it. And it was hard for me to understand. And it was really hard for me to say, like, I, I think I had this conversation with myself, like, well, you know, you only knew him for a couple of years. So what's my justification after I hit that? timeline of even knowing him alive. The relationship's this long and the the grief is longer than that and how do you make sense of that?
0: Would you feel the same way you think if you heard about a six-year-old who was still grieving the death of their parent when they were 13? No, I
1: mean no, I was easier on everyone than (laughs) than myself. I think that was one of the big things in my grieving process is that I was just so hard on myself every step of the way. There was you know, the loss of him, which was huge, just missing him as a person. And there was the loss of my sense of future and my plan. You know, and I was, I've always been this really independent person and I've never really attached myself to a, a partner or the idea of a husband or marriage or any of this stuff or, the, you know, a particular future that hinges on somebody else. And I really let myself with him. And so to have it taken away, it was really devastating and unfair. It shifted how I think about the world. You know, I think there's this sense of like what's fair and what's not fair. And that doesn't really come into play with death, it just is. But I had been walking around the world with this system in my head of what belonged where and and which I think is also why I tried to like calculate and plan and schedule my own grieving process. But no, I, I tend to have a lot more compassion for other people. I think having compassion for yourself while you're grieving is really important. And I not
0: not all people are, are great at that part. I would say that's pretty consistent with what we hear all the time. Yeah, that people give themselves such a hard time. We really set up a system
1: where like people don't even know what to expect for themselves. And it's different for everyone, which I think is what complicates it. When Jared died, I did really do too much outside of having a very, very tight circle with the people who cared most about him. Like that was sort of my comfort zone. I do remember looking into support groups and there was um, some widow support groups and I felt, I can't go there. What are these people going to think of me? I was really scared that someone was going to tell me that I had my whole life ahead of me and that I could find another person to fall in love with and that it would somehow diminish what I had experienced. And I still walk around with that sometimes have have people
0: said that to you have you run into anyone
1: yeah and I think I think with the nicest intent that of course you'll find this again you know you're so great and all of all of these things that are like supposed to make me feel better about the future but people individuals can't be replaced those connections that you have with people can't be replaced and Jared used to say it to me all the time and it's kind of funny to me now but he would say about our relationship lightning doesn't strike twice you know we really felt like we had this very special connection and very special relationship and we felt so lucky and grateful to have each other it is hard for me to imagine having something like we had again in the future I think I'm at the point where I'm hopeful there will be something there but not it won't be it won't be us because I'm no longer who I was before he died,
0: before knowing him. That makes me think of a conversation I had on an earlier podcast episode with Megan Devine talking about dating after the death of a partner and Mm -hmm. how I might misquote here, but this idea that it's not any sort of replacement. It's that maybe there's room for more in my heart, but there's no taking away the part of my heart that Mm -hmm. is with this person. Yeah,
1: I didn't date anyone for a very long time. I think in part because I just struggled too. I think meeting this person that I felt like was my true counterpart and this person who saw me so deeply and understood me and we were just starting and it was amazing. I think there was also like this kind of push-pull in me where I felt a loyalty to him still. I felt like I couldn't. I'm still honoring him, and you know, and what would people think of, of not me, but him? Like I really wanted people to understand how loved he was, and how how honored he was, and how loyal I was to him. And I think that just made me kind of shut off to the prospect
0: of dating in general. It's almost a bit of a bind where that fear that you know, who am I to be grieving? this relationship, this way for so long, but if I date someone, what will people think that means about me and my grief and Jared and and who he was in my life?
1: Right, right. I mean, and and people who have lost a partner or a spouse, they, you know, some people date right away and that's absolutely okay. You know, everyone is, is totally different, but I do think I had a layer of wanting to just make sure everyone understood and un- honor him. And then also just, he, he has big, sh- there's big shoes to fill. <laughs> you know, There's really
0: big <laughs> shoes to fill. How did you make your way through those events that are so coupley? y right? Mm-hmm. Holidays, oh, yeah. friends' weddings, and even just a friend's barbecue where mm-hmm. everyone came together as a couple. Yeah,
1: you know, we were right at that point in our lives where um, that stuff all started happening really quickly after his one of his good friends uh, got married and you know Jared was best man material and he would have been the person planning the bachelor party so how I handled it was that we got to throw a bachelor party (laughs) (laughs) I just I, I tried to successfully or not I don't know but I tried to kind of fill those shoes but yeah being there without him It was really hard for me. I remember I had a couple of really close friends that got married back home and I just, and my mother got married and I couldn't go. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I couldn't bring myself to sort of celebrate other people's relationships. That was really hard for me. And also hard because I had lost him and hard because I felt crappy about the fact that I couldn't be there and show up and be joyful for them. But again, I'm, I'm so lucky with the people. Like Jared was just this like amazing person, this magnet for other people and such a good friend. I think all of his friends were really devastated by his loss. And a lot of his friends sort of took me in, not necessarily because of me or who I am, but really because of who Jared was and because they, were, they knew I was as important to him as I was therefore I was this precious thing uh, and they were going to look out for me forever. And, and in particular, like his two best friends are just two of my best friends. It was an incredible experience just knowing Jared because he, he really was a sort of magical person and, uh, and an extraordinary experience losing him and then trying to carve out a life without him. Those two, you know, his, his best friends are definitely people who I see still actively grieving him and and missing him being there at important events for their lives and I know he's present for them in a way that he's he's present for me and there's just a lot of comfort between all of us in that
0: and there's power in being around others who can reflect back yeah or you know validate that and that deep level of grief and connection and and just missing of yeah. someone. I know we're getting a little close on, okay. on time for our, our episode today. I, I'm just curious: is there anything about grief that stands out as just being ridiculously awkward, uncomfortable? Yeah. <laughs> um, besides all of it. Yeah, all of it. No. Um,
1: so I was I was super surprised by how incapacitated I was. One of the things that's huge and affects everything else is that I walked into. My relationship with Jared, having a really strong sense of self and understanding who I was, and I could kind of predict my actions and reactions to things. And in losing him, grief is so devastating and it sort of rewires who you are as a person. I feel like I didn't even know who I was anymore and I couldn't predict what I was going to do. So even when people would say, like, you know, what do you need, you know, and I would tell them and express to them, but two minutes later it's something totally different and I had no idea that was coming. It's uncomfortable to navigate your own grief like that. And then because I approached it in this way that I was like, I am going to surround myself with people who are also grieving. That can be brutal. You know, (laughs) I think there was losing him and missing him and all of that. But then just like, yeah, everyone else's stuff. And it's so emotional. And everyone has their right to feel exactly how they're feeling. But it can cause pain for you, too. And then awkward moments, yeah, I remember breaking down in the grocery store crying uh, soon after his death because I saw this brand of popsicles that he got me once when I had a sore throat. (laughs) Like, it's a whole different spectrum of emotions. And for me,
0: even still, it's really easy to tap into um, any of those. It makes me wonder if someone one day will do some PhD research on grocery stores. (laughs) And grief, because I hear it so often Really, the grocery store is the place where people get... Overwhelmed, the broccoli, the popsicles, the Cadbury cream eggs that somebody sees. And, you know, I'm sure there's lots of connections between food and family and friends and Mm -hmm. love. And, you know, there's those things. But I don't know. There's something about the grocery store. So if anybody out there is a researcher looking for a dissertation topic, I would like to know more about (laughs) what it is between grocery stores and and grief attacks.
1: Yeah, me too. I mean, I had them all over the place for a whole lot of
0: reasons. But yeah, no, the grocery store is a funny one. Well, Lindsay, I really want to thank you for sharing your story and giving us just a little window into the magical person that Jared was. Yeah, thank you for letting me share that. And for everyone out there listening, I mentioned another episode with Megan Devine on dating after the death of a partner there's a few other episodes that speak to the experience of having your partner die so you can find those on our website it's d-o-u-g-y.org, and you can also listen to any past episodes iTunes or Stitcher or any other podcast platform that you might be using and if you have a topic that you'd really like to hear us talk about on the podcast please send us an email at help at Dougie.org and we will do our best to have an episode to talk about that thanks for listening